0: The following episode of Annals On Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. If lower blood glucoses are a problem, then... Don't cut back the insulin, that's our best defense against ketoacidosis, reduce the SGLT2.
1: Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former Chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to Annals on Call. In this episode, we're going to discuss SGLT2s as part of Diabetes Chronic Kidney Disease Management. This is based on an article titled Diabetes Management in Chronic Kidney Disease, Synopsis of the 2020 KDGO Clinical Practice Guideline that appeared March 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine. Joining us on this podcast once again is Dr. Catherine Tuttle, who's Professor of Medicine at the University of Washington and co-principal investigator in the Institute of Transitional Health Sciences for the University of Washington Providence Health and Services in Spokane, Washington. Also on this podcast, Jonathan Himmelfarb joins us. He's co-director of the University of Washington Center for Dialysis Innovation the director of the Kidney Research Institute, professor of medicine, adjunct professor of bioengineering, and holds the Joseph W. Eskbach Endowed Chair in Kidney Research at the University of Washington. We hope you learn a great deal from this podcast. Well, Kathy and Jonathan, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. We're going to start out talking about the uh, diabetes management uh, in chronic kidney disease which just came out in the annals, but is really a synopsis of a guideline that came out a year ago. We're going to talk a little bit about what has happened since, because this is such a rapidly progressing field that if we don't mention what has happened since the guideline was written, we're really not doing you, the audience, a service. A lot of this is how do we help people who have diabetic kidney disease? And I want you to also tell me about just because somebody with diabetes has kidney disease doesn't it's not necessarily diabetic kidney disease. What's the standard treatment to try to slow progression? Talk about the SGLT2s, and then we'll see where we are. So who wants to go first?
0: Well, okay, Dr. Centaur. I, I will jump in since I was a member of the guideline committee and I'm a co-author on the paper. Yes, this is the first time the diabetes and CKD guidelines have been updated and I guess it's been eight years. And part of the reason was we had a long drought where we did not have new therapies that were making it to the clinical arena. And over the past three years in particular, we've actually had really an explosion of breakthrough therapies that are now really poised to change the course for people who have diabetes and chronic kidney disease and you know, the main focus was really the update of the new clinical trials on SGLT2 inhibitors. Although we certainly addressed some other emerging therapies such as GLP-1 receptor agonists. And we also wanted to emphasize the importance of comprehensive lifestyle management. The Importance of healthy lifestyle is the base for all of it. And use of the prior standard of care, which is either an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, because we know from real world data that despite the fact that we've had those agents for. More than two decades, arguably three decades, they're still underutilized. So now we have to get the house in order and really get the foundation set so that we can deploy new therapies that can really uh, improve outcomes for patients with this very serious health condition.
1: The SGLT2 story is one of the most fascinating stories. Certainly, this is an early decade, but I think it's going to be kind of hard to top the SGLT2 story. And Kathy, you and I have done a podcast on this before, but a lot of more data have come out even since this guideline was written. So this is my understanding of where we are in 2020, and now we're in 2021. We know that it slows progression of kidney disease and diabetes, at least presumed diabetic kidney disease, and also leads to better outcomes in people with diabetes and systolic dysfunction, uh, so-called HEFREF. But more data have come out uh, suggesting that it might even be better than that. It may uh, work in other types of kidney, protein kidney disease, and work in people with heart failure who don't have diabetes. Could you all sort of summarize uh, the, that more recent data and maybe try to help me understand why we think it's working
2: so well? It is truly a remarkable story that is evolving, and it's certainly not completed uh, at this point in time. We, you know, I think we have to keep in mind that these uh, drugs were developed really simply to lower blood sugar as an alternate mechanism to lower blood sugar in diabetes. And at the very beginning of the story, there wasn't a lot of rationale for why these drugs might be protective against heart disease or protective against kidney disease. And it's really because the FDA now mandates in clinical trials of drugs designed to lower blood sugar and lower hemoglobin A1C as a surrogate outcome, they now uh, mandate really making sure that there aren't untoward effects on kidney function or on cardiac function. And it turned out to be just the opposite, that in studying, in having large enough clinical trials to be powered for other outcomes than lowering blood sugar, it turned out that these drugs are really pretty remarkable uh, in their uh, cytoprotective properties for kidney function. And now uh, we're learning, as you point out, that uh, in the absence of diabetes, In large clinical trials, these drugs are slowing the progression of chronic kidney disease. And in the absence of diabetes, uh, this whole class of drugs uh, can be protective against heart failure, particularly uh, systolic dysfunction. So it really is quite remarkable. It was unexpected. And the story is evolving very rapidly and will continue to evolve. And these drugs are likely to be tested for benefit In other kidney conditions, I will not be at all surprised if there are uh, clinical trials in acute kidney injury uh, to see if there's uh, also potential benefit here. And part of the challenge and part of the excitement is trying to figure out the mechanism by which these drugs are so protective, particularly in the kidney. And at the beginning, the clinical clue to some of the protection was that there's often an initial drop in the uh, estimated glomerular filtration rate. In other words, the serum creatinine goes up by 5 or 10% in the first several weeks after initiation of the use of these SGLT2 inhibitors. And that usually, since the glomerulus is the filtering unit of the kidney, that implies that there are changes in the glomerular hemodynamics, the blood flow in, the pressures inside uh, the glomerulus. And we saw that in the past with, uh, as Kathy mentioned, uh, the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs. They also will initially lower the GFR because they have hemodynamic effects on the glomerulus as a filter, but then they have long-term preservative effects on glomerular function because lowering those pressures, kind of like lowering blood pressure, lowering the pressures inside the glomerulus tends to protect the capillaries and the blood vessels inside the glomerulus. So there was an initial clue that part of the mechanism by which these drugs might be protective in the kidney was by lowering these intraglomerular pressures. And there's a mechanism for that that we have understood for probably 50, 60 years. And that is that since the the SGLT2 inhibitors block both sodium and glucose uptake in the proximal tubule, they increase the distal flow of salt and the distal flow of glucose And there's a mechanism in the macula densa of the kidney called tubuloglomerular feedback that we've understood for a while that then where too much uh, solute in the tubules causes the glomeruli to constrict. So that was the initial thinking about how these drugs might be protective for the kidney. But now there's a lot of thinking that it goes beyond that. And that is by blocking glucose uptake in the proximal tubule, you change substrate metabolism in the proximal tubule. That's the part of the kidney that that is metabolically the most active. It reabsorbs solutes, and that takes a lot of ATP because you're going against a concentration gradient. So the proximal tubule is one of the most susceptible cells in the kidney to injury. It's chock full of mitochondria. And by changing the substrates, by decreasing glucose absorption, it may be, and by decreasing the work of the proximal tubule, you may be protecting the kidney in the long run. So there's a lot of interest right now in really teasing out these mechanisms by which these drugs are so protective in the kidney. And some of the thinking in the heart as well is that they change substrate metabolism for cardiomyocytes in a way that may be protective in the heart as well. So there's a lot of excitement And there's still a lot to be learned about mechanism, and there's a lot to be learned clinically about which patient populations will get the most benefit from this whole class, uh, new class of drugs.
1: Let's just be real specific here, since Kathy is both our expert on uh, the nephrology side, but also the endocrine side. Let's talk about which type of diabetes we can even use SGLT2s in.
0: Well, to date, uh, the main use has been uh, studied in type 2 diabetes because the idea was this originally would be a new class of oral glucose-lowering therapies. And one of the side effects that we see, and this relates to what Jonathan was talking about in terms of switching substrate metabolism, is that drugs do induce a mild ketosis. And mild ketosis may be one of the benefits to the cardiac myocyte. Because beta-hydroxybutyrate is believed to be a preferred fuel and may increase myocardial function. But if that substrate metabolism tips too far and there's an increase in ketosis, we see something called euglycemic ketoacidosis or ketoacidosis with only mildly elevated glucose. So this is one of the major side effects. It occurs in only a couple of percent of patients in the clinical trials. But one thing we would caution about is our clinical trial populations are relatively healthy compared to as treated people in the community. So this is a caution around those agents. And with regard to type one diabetes, this is one of the reasons there has been a great deal of caution about applying them to type one. Now in the IMPA kidney study, which is an empagliflozin study for chronic kidney disease with or without diabetes, we also have included a very small subset of patients with type one who are being very carefully monitored, but there is caution because in particular, the risk of ketoacidosis could be amplified in type one diabetes. Now that said, there are studies in the works planning for doing a kidney disease study for type one diabetes, but. Uh, and I will disclose I'm on the planning committee for that trial, but there's a great deal of attention to ketone monitoring and assuring safety. So at the present time, they're recommended in type two, but not yet in type one for kidney or cardiovascular protection. However, despite the challenge of safety, we do believe that we can study them safely with a mitigation protocol And if that study is successful, meaning we see comparable efficacy and we can apply the drugs without an untoward increased risk of ketoacidosis, I think the future could lead us to type one. But presently, it's limited to type two. And the other bit I would add for a clinical practice, Pearl, is anybody with type two diabetes who takes insulin should be viewed as relatively insulinopenic. And um, with regard to ketoacidosis prevention in the type two patient, we recommend not reducing the insulin doses. So if adding the SGLT2 inhibitor increases the frequency or severity of hypoglycemic reactions, and I guess I would say in and of themselves, they don't cause hypoglycemia, but added to an agent that does, such as insulin or a sulfonylurea, they can. In that case, we recommend reducing the SGLT2 inhibitor dose, not the insulin dose. And the saving grace is that the SGLT2 effect appears to largely be dose independent, the effect on organ protection for heart and kidney. So for the practitioner, if you're planning to start an SGLT2 in a type two diabetic patient who takes insulin, watch for hypoglycemia, encourage self-monitoring or maybe a continuous glucose monitor if a patient has access to that, If lower blood glucoses are a problem, then don't cut back the insulin. That's our best defense against ketoacidosis. Reduce the SGLT2. I'm
1: so glad you mentioned the continuous glucose monitor because I would just like to amplify that that is a great way to decrease the risk of hypoglycemia. And I've I've done a full podcast on continuous glucose monitoring before. And especially in the type 2 diabetics who are on insulin Uh, It's a a lot easier to get it approved if they're on insulin. You're going to have a hard time getting it approved if they're not on insulin. So you're both involved in a project which has four letters, KPMP. And could you tell us how this project is going to help us learn more about uh, diabetic kidney disease as well as other kidney diseases? And how much do we have to worry about other kidney diseases in patients with diabetes?
2: Thanks very much, uh, Bob, for asking about uh, KPMP, which stands for the Kidney Precision Medicine Project. It's a very ambitious project funded by the National Institutes of Health that really truly is seeking a breakthrough in kidney health uh, that can change the outcome, we hope, for uh, many people living with kidney diseases. Maybe I'll start with the problem that we're trying to address. The problem we're trying to address is that nearly 75%, nearly three quarters of all people on dialysis have kidney disease that's attributed to either diabetes or hypertension. And the standard of care for uh, people with chronic kidney disease with hypertension or, or diabetes doesn't often involve having a kidney biopsy. And so we don't have a good understanding at a molecular level of why some people with hypertension and or diabetes, their kidney disease progresses, other people it doesn't. Uh, And while we've tried to bend the curve uh, of risk over time and the ACE inhibitors and ARBs bent the curve but didn't really turn the curve downward for the incidence and prevalence of end-stage kidney disease Our understanding was limited and the number of drugs up until these new exciting drugs that were developed specifically for diabetes, but are turning out to be repurposed for kidney disease. Until then, we really didn't have any new therapies over decades that were beneficial. And also, uh, kidney disease disproportionately affects African-Americans and people of color. So that uh, uh, African-Americans, for example, are maybe 11 or 12 percent of the population, but close to 35 percent of the dialysis population. So there are huge public health problems in relation to kidney disease that's attributed to diabetes and hypertension that despite decades of trying, we haven't been able to really accomplish what we would like to accomplish. So the goal of this project is to identify new treatments for kidney diseases that would be precision medicine based. So, you know, in the practice of medicine, uh, it's always centered on an individual person. We think that every person with diabetes and or hypertension and kidney disease probably has a unique biology and Both social and life circumstances are different, clinical course is different, but the underlying mechanisms in the kidney itself that lead to progression of disease are different in person-to-person, whether with hypertension, diabetes, or other causes of kidney disease. And Now we have the tools that we never had before with tissue to molecularly interrogate that tissue with incredible technologies that have been developed uh, that at the single cell level can tell us about the entire transcriptome or the proteome or the metabolome. And since the kidney is such a complicated organ architecturally with so many different cell types, this gives us tools we never had before to really break through and develop an understanding of why some people's kidney disease progresses and other people it doesn't. Uh, on the same agent. So the goal of the Kidney Precision Medicine Project is basically to uh, ethically collect kidney biopsies from people with either acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease who wouldn't otherwise necessarily, for clinical purposes, be having a kidney biopsy. So it means individuals taking on personal risk for the greater good so that we can develop new diagnostics and new therapeutics. And this will be a longitudinal study, so people who are enrolled will be followed for an extensive period of time with many other types of measurements of uh, what's going on biologically, uh, so-called phenotypically and urine samples and blood samples collected, because ultimately we'd like to have a peripheral, a blood or a urine test that would tell us what we expect to learn from these biopsies that could tell us what's the best treatment for an individual patient based on what's going on at a molecular level that's causing disease pathogenesis. Uh, So basically, we're saying not all people with diabetes and diabetic kidney disease are alike. Not all people with hypertension and chronic kidney disease are alike. The drivers are different for the disease process, and the treatment should be individualized, But to do that, we have to understand in individual people what's driving that disease process. And we're already, although it's early stages for this study, we're getting a sense that it's going to be a game changer. For one thing, we're seeing molecular patterns where in people with acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease, uh, the molecular drivers, there's a lot of convergence that we're seeing. And we think of these as separate syndromes, but there may be a lot of overlap there. And we're already seeing in some of these early cases that even with very seasoned clinicians making a diagnosis pre-biopsy, that diagnosis is often changing after we see the pathology of the tissue itself. And in some cases, the biopsy findings are changing clinical management, even though that wasn't the initial goal of the study. So this is early stages, but the Kidney Precision Medicine Project is conceived to be a truly ambitious project that we hope is gonna bend that curve, the public health curve of kidney disease uh, and change the course of kidney disease so that we'll really finally get to where uh, the number of uh, people who are developing end-stage kidney disease can be dramatically reduced over time. You know, when we say someone has heart failure, that, that,
1: that there are a lot of different diseases that cause heart failure and so the the clinical diagnosis of heart failure changes depending upon what the etiology is. So if, if someone has a viral myocarditis, we might be able to stabilize the patient. They may totally recover. Um, and I think what I hear you saying is that people who have chronic kidney disease and diabetes and chronic kidney disease and hypertension probably have a number of different phenotypes. Uh, and and by, by lumping them all into diabetic kidney disease and hypertensive kidney disease, we're doing a disservice to what the real pathophysiology is. If we understand the pathophysiology, we're more likely to come up with unique treatments. And probably some of these people have IgA nephropathy. Some of these people have a variety of types of glomerulonephritis. And we have no idea because we haven't been biopsying those patients.
2: I think you have that 100% right. I would even take it a step further, and it's not just heart failure, but imagine if you just classified uh, people as having heart disease. Right. And it could be valvular heart disease. It can be atherosclerotic heart disease. And if all you knew was they had heart disease, how you wouldn't know how to treat people. So the term chronic kidney disease is based on an estimate, you know, a serum creatinine, which is converted to an estimate of the glomerular filtration rate, and then we measure protein in the urine. And these are very good at identifying kidney dysfunction and kidney injury, but they don't tell us anything specifically about what's actually going on in the kidney. So if all you knew about uh, heart disease was that somebody had heart disease, you would have no idea how to treat it. And this is part of the reason, not the full reason, but part of the reason why kidney disease has lagged in developing new effective, safe and effective therapies over a number of decades. It is changing. And part of it is because we're seeing potential for new therapies like the SGLT2 inhibitors to make a difference. So we hope that this study, along with other developments in the field, are going to dramatically transform how we diagnose and treat kidney diseases in the future.
1: When Kathy and I did our previous podcast, SGLT2s, The Good, Bad, and the Ugly, because that's one of my favorite movies ever, (laughs) um, we talked about the ugly being the cost. And as I've been learning more about SGLT2s and how they work in both diabetes as well as non-diabetics, and as they work both in the kidney and in the heart, I'm starting to think that maybe even though they're expensive, they might even be cost-saving. And so you're always thinking about cost-effectiveness or cost-benefit. So Kathy and I had a chat about this earlier. The SGLT2s will cost between $500 and $1,000 a month at the current time, is my understanding. What is it saving? And do you have data on how many people do we need to treat in order to get some benefits?
0: Well, Sure, Bob. I'm, I'm happy to jump in on that one. And if I can also just circle back to what Jonathan was saying about KPMP, even among people who have a kidney disease that is attributable to diabetes, we know that the heterogeneity is far beyond what we have conventionally described as diabetic nephropathy, which is even the reason it's now called kidney disease because within that umbrella, like Jonathan was saying, there are at least five different histologic patterns that are attributable to diabetes that probably need more specific therapies. SGLT2 inhibitors we stumbled upon by accident, what marvelous serendipity, but we aren't gonna continue to find new therapies this way. That said, while we're running in parallel with KPMP, we do need to be deploying these new therapies. With regard to costs, there actually have been um, some important advances there. So first off, the group that conducted the credence trial from sydney australia had published recently a very nice uh, cost effectiveness analysis now please understand it's based on the australian health system which is quite different than the u.s health system but the bottom line is after two years for every dollar spent there's more than a dollar returned and by the time that an individual would survive 10 years. And I and I emphasize survival because these drugs also reduce mortality. These are people who wouldn't have, many of them wouldn't have even lived 10 years. But now with the projection for survival of 10 years or more, by 10 years for every dollar spent, there's $5 returned, not only to the healthcare system, but to the general economy. Now, Australia has a different healthcare system that includes universal healthcare coverage. And while that is a very compelling argument, one of the challenges in the US is that we don't have the longer term view, especially because many people change insurance coverage every couple of years. So at least our perspective has been that insurance companies often aren't interested in those longer term outcomes. They're more interested in shorter term outcomes. Now that said, The number needed to treat in the most recent SGLT2 inhibitor trial, DAPA CKD, that included non diabetic and diabetic people who had albuminuria more than 200 milligrams per gram in the urine and a GFR between 25 and 75 was 19 over a 2.6 year period. And that included not only the outcome of needed to treat for kidney failure, but needed to treat to reduce all-cause mortality. In fact, there was a 30% reduction in all-cause mortality. So if the US healthcare system could look beyond the immediate term, the Australian analysis would suggest it's highly cost-effective, and not just for the healthcare system, but for the economy of the country. The American Society of Nephrology now has a diabetic kidney disease task force, which I have the privilege of chairing. And one of the main objectives of what we call DKDC, the DKD Collaborative is to work with the US government, other payers, healthcare systems and clinicians to figure out how to get the job done. And that includes resourcing this properly so that we can deliver best practices and doing it at a price that we can afford. So I do believe that these drugs are likely to be cost-effective in most regions of the world, including the U.S. And now we're actually, I think, in a position to work with key opinion leaders and policy makers to make it possible.
2: I love that summary. Bob, maybe I'll add one thing to what Kathy said, and that is that uh, dialysis, in addition to having a phenomenal impact on the quality of individuals' lives, is incredibly expensive in the United States. The federal government pays out 1% of the entire federal budget almost, not just the Medicare budget, of the entire federal budget towards the care of patients on dialysis. And those costs can range, there are different cost estimates, but they're often in the range of about $100,000 per person per year, somewhere between seventy dollars and $120,000 per person per year. Aggregate costs, that's not just for the dialysis treatment, but for all the hospitalizations and medications uh, uh, that are required. So uh, even if the SGLT2 inhibitors, let's say cost 5000 or $6,000 a year, uh, if you're preventing ESRD uh, and the need for dialysis, for the society as a whole, uh, they will end up being uh, cost effective. And there are some, you know, at this point in time, there isn't long-term follow-up, but if you extrapolate out the rates of loss of kidney function in mLs per minute per year in people who've got chronic kidney disease, let's say diabetic kidney disease, and you reduce the rate by, for example, the Credence trial, which Kathy uh, referred to, from 4 mLs per minute per year down to close to 2 mLs per minute per year, and you extrapolate that out, if those benefits are maintained over time, you may reduce the period of time that people experience ESRD by upwards of a decade or more. So it's hard to imagine that a drug that slows progression of kidney disease, treats diabetes, and tends to prevent cardiovascular complications and reduces mortality wouldn't be cost-effective. We've always talked about quality adjusted life years,
1: but I I learned the phrase productivity-adjusted life years. And I think what you're saying, I'm gonna reinterpret as saying, people will have more productivity-adjusted life years if they're not developing heart failure and not developing progressive chronic kidney disease. And so that's good for the economy and it's good for the person. So we're both helping the people and we're helping financially. I can't thank you all enough for uh, joining us on this podcast. I think that the listeners will have a much better understanding of where we are in chronic kidney disease, especially in diabetics, and where we're going. And it's, it's been a pleasure talking to both of you.
0: Thank you.
2: Well, thanks so much, Bob, for the opportunity. I'm sure I'm speaking for Kathy as well. We really enjoyed this opportunity and this discussion.
1: Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. In this wide-ranging discussion, I would like to highlight several things. The first is an understanding that diabetic kidney disease likely is not just one kidney disease, but a variety of manifestations of diabetic kidney disease. The second is that SGLT2s are not just for diabetics. Recent research has shown that it is successful at slowing down progression of kidney disease in a variety of proteinuric kidney diseases and it is valuable in treating heart failure not just in patients with diabetes but with all patients who have systolic dysfunction. The mechanism of why SGLT2s are helping with kidney disease progression and heart failure are postulated in the podcast uh, but we still really don't understand why they're doing such a great job. And the final thing is when starting an SGLT2 on a type 2 diabetic who is on insulin, be careful about uh, hypoglycemia. If you start to get hypoglycemia, please decrease the SGLT2, not the insulin, because insulin is our protection against ketoacidosis. We really appreciate you listening to our podcast. Thank you so much.
0: For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.